Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Eric Strickland, and thank you very much for joining us this week. Um, we're excited to have you uh, listening to us. So wherever you got us, either on iTunes, Google Play, whatever sort of podcast listening uh, service you found us, make sure to give us a good rating, leave a comment, let us know what you like or don't like, uh, more of what you like. I prefer to see those kind of things. But let us know how things are going, and we'd really appreciate it. Also, make sure that you give us a follow on Twitter, at NTSB, on Facebook, at NTSBGov, uh, Instagram, NTSBGov. NTSB Gov, and then also LinkedIn NTSB Gov. So we're we're on all the social media platforms. If you don't remember any of that, just search for NTSB with whatever social media platform you like, and you'll be able to find us. And so we'd love to have you uh, have you follow us there. Uh, this week, I'm very excited and thrilled to be joined by uh, NTSB board member Christopher Hart. He has been a uh, long-serving board member, multiple-term board member over multiple uh, well different decades. And so uh, I'm excited to have this conversation to find out the changes of and things that he's seen from one, you know, I guess, sort of generation of NTSB to another generation of NTSB and how all that goes. And so um, thank you very much for joining us on Behind the Scenes, sir. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So this is uh, and as our listeners know, as we're going through the episodes, you know, this is a new platform for the NTSB. And so um you know, it's kind of like a regular interview, but not. So I hope that no one gets nervous when they come in here. But Mr. Hart does not seem nervous at all. He's prepared and ready to give us a rousing history, <laughs> rousing history of uh, of uh, NTSB and uh, some other agencies. Because it's you've had a you've had a very um, unique career uh, even before coming to the NTSB. So kind of before that, I just want to get into you know. Um, you were you were a pilot and a lawyer. You know how did what what interest came to you first? Was it the interest to in uh, in the legal side of things, or was it the interest in the flying side of things? My mother told me the first thing she ever saw me draw was an airplane. So I guess I'm an airplane <laughs> addict. So it must have been the flying side of things. But I'm also an engineer because I like to figure out how the flying side of things That's right. work. That's so right. Yeah. Knowing how they work, the the lawyer thing was kind of a, a last minute change, and I was uh, I had just finished getting a, my bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering, was uh, signed up to do a master's degree in aerospace engineering and decided I wanted to think of something that would that would give me more personal contact with the people I benefited. So yeah. as an aerospace engineer, for example, I had a summer job at Boeing and we were building the 747. Oh, so really? Figured, now, that's a, that's a great thing to be doing. It'll benefit society, but I will never really meet the beneficiaries of what I do yeah. up close and personal. So that was, that was what motivated the, the law school move was I wanted to do something where I could be more in tune and talk face to face with the people that I'm benefiting. So, so you worked on the 747. So, uh, I guess when someone says they work on the 747, what does that mean? So I guess for you, what did you do on kind of helping with the 747? I've never met someone that worked on a plane before. I was a summer engineer, yeah, aeronautical engineer. So I helped with the design aspects of the 747. That was back in the sixties. So this goes back a year or two. <laughs> That's awesome. So it was, I, I'm, you've got it. You've got me very interested in this. Like, do you get assigned? All right, you're working on the wing set, or you're working at, like as an intern. Do they just give you like a certain part of it, or were you kind of a floater and you used your uh, aeronautical engineering expertise on different pieces of the plane? Probably more of a floater, but you understand since this was in the late '60s, I don't remember the details of what <laughs> I did for that summer. I do remember that I was worked on a project to try to reduce noise for jets approaching airports. So they oh. were doing that by having a steeper approach, the theory of that being that the engines are running 
at idle at this very steep approach. It was yeah. a six-degree approach, then transitioning to a three-degree approach, and the, and the idea was the six-degree part would be very quiet because the engines weren't producing any noise. So we did an experiment with how to, wh whether it was feasible for an airplane to do a six-degree degree approach to transition to a three-degree approach. So that was that was a lot of what I did for yeah. that. For that. So that it was a fascinating uh, it was a fascinating summer. I loved uh, and uh, I loved what I did, but but I didn't feel the personal yeah the personal contact with yeah the a lot of a lot of you know yeah you know, at that time slide rules and right. no, I'm sorry I did I, I still did have learn it. How to, you still have it that's awesome <laughs> most definitely uh, that seems like a steep approach too for such a big plane to come in and do that so. Right probably a lot of mock-up models to make sure parts didn't fall off as it came in to do that. Well, it was an interesting experiment the way Boeing did it, and they had the, the computer that they had computer. on the plane to generate this glide slope, since there was no real other yeah. glide slope like that, the computer pretty much filled up the airplane. So it was, <laughs> so it was an amazing you have a, experience. You have a plane that's quiet, but no one can fly on it. <laughs> right, basically, right. <laughs> that is awesome. I had no idea about that. So, yep. well, it's a, that has to be then a unique background that you could take with, into the legal field. And I know that that was very interesting. I was uh, lucky enough to go on a trip with you recently to uh, to your alma mater up into the Boston area and hear some of your stories and, and some of the work that you did while you were in school there. I mean, from working with very early computers in the 60s and then working with some of your clients that you had while in school at Boston, very different audiences, you know, um, we were able did you ever want to try to combine the passions, you know, legal, aeronautical, engineer, like, so just specialize in things dealing with planes? Most and, definitely. Most of the jobs yeah. I've had since graduating from law school have combined both, including what I'm doing now at the yeah. NTSB. So there's a lot of engineering aspects of that. There's a lot of legal aspects of that. And there's yeah. the piloting aspects as well. So this is, this is a dream job for me and that I am able to combine all of the aspects of my background. Yeah. So what kind of plane do you like to fly? Or did you, do you still fly? Uh, not because no, I'm at because the NTSB because I'm so yeah. busy. And <laughs> as they say about flying, you shouldn't do it at all unless you do it a lot. And I yeah. haven't been able to do it. No, much. I know that. We'll try to keep you less busy. But, <laughs> you know, what was one of your favorite types of planes to fly? Well, I had the opportunity when I visited Airbus to fly the A380, for example. So nice. I'm probably the only one on my block who's done that. <laughs> and, but uh, when I was at the FAA, I flew the Cessna Citation. They have a business jet fleet at yeah. the National Airport that they use for VIP transport. And I was on their list of pilots to fly the business jets. So so that was a great experience too. That's pretty cool. To be able to have all that jet time because then that allowed me to see up close and personal a lot of the human factors issues sure. associated with some of the airlines, you know, avionics that uh, airlines have. Well, and I think it has probably very interesting and very useful as well to get that time in the cockpit, but also then you're understanding uh, some of the issues going into the airport, some of the different airport issues that are going on, the, the you know, talking to air traffic control, whatever, because uh, you mentioned it and we can, you know, talk about that. I'd love to hear about it, your your time at the FAA. So so did you go to the FAA first, then come to the NTSB in the 90s, or was well, it the, the other way around? I was the NTSB from 90 to 93, okay. appointed to a Democratic slot by George Bush Sr. Okay. And so that was that was before the FAA. The FAA was from '95 till I came back to the NTSB in 2009. Okay, so that was 14 years at the FAA. That's that's pretty cool. So so in the in the early '90s at the NTSB, first we'll just start with what change. You know, how does the NTSB look from the early '90s to to now? I mean, I, I know some of the people are still here that were there in the early '90s. You know, no one in this room. I'm not going to say any <laughs> names, but um, you know, and then to now. Do you notice? Did you notice when you came back, like any 
any changes, you know, with the new technologies that the uh, staff had to learn how to do investigations on new types of technologies or anything like that? Lots of changes. For example, the NTSB was evolving out of an era of ending their reports with pilot error. Yeah. So that was kind of, okay, pilot error, pilot messed up. Well, now we know that's the beginning of the inquiry and not the end of the inquiry. So we're looking at all of the circumstances why this proud, competent, highly trained professional trying to do the right thing made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And what was it about the circumstances, the situation, the training, the equipment, whatever, that caused this mistake and that resulted in a mistake that yeah. that could not be accepted without catastrophic consequence in the system. So, so we were evolving away from just pilot error, end of story, to that being kind of the beginning of the inquiry. And let's figure out what it is that's yeah. making this happen because good people don't hurt themselves on purpose. Yeah. So there must be something more to it. And that's, and we were sort of evolving Doing out of that phase, thanks largely to John Lauber, who was a board member at the time in the early 90s. And he was the one who brought a lot of that thinking to the table about we pilot error doesn't answer the question, that asked the question. Yeah. Do you think some of the new technologies that were emerging then helped expand upon that? So it wasn't just a, a supposition like we actually starting to see we're starting to collect more of this data because I know that was a big push to get more data recorders put on not just large planes, but all planes like around that time. Right. Because yeah, the recorders were originally invented to serve the NTSB when they were investigating an accident. So that meant, in theory, you only looked at it once and that's yeah. after the crash. They were starting to realize we weren't the first in the U.S. to realize this. This was probably in the U.K. They realized it first oh. that there's lots of information on a flight data recorder that if you read it out after every flight, you can learn a lot of information about what almost went wrong, for example. And yeah. then from that, you can see why did it almost go wrong? And even better, what was done right to keep it from really going wrong. So yeah. there, there were lots of there were lots of opportunities to look at flight data recorders routinely instead of just after the crash. Yeah. So that we were also in that phase that when I was at the FAA is when that really started to, to develop was looking at flight data recorders routinely and, and, and using that information proactively rather than waiting till after the crash and looking at it yeah. after the crash. So you'd served a, a term here at the NTSB and then went to the FAA. Right. You know, how did that transition go? And was it helpful to have the kind of investigative history that you had at the NTSB to help with the regular, the then regulatory side of the FAA? It was very helpful because my primary mission at the FAA was to try to figure out how to take advantage of the IT advances, the information technology advances, to collect and analyze data and use it proactively. So as a former investigator or as a member of an agency that is an investigative agency, I had a better sense of what kinds of information you'd want to have to help you figure out how to keep these things from happening in the future. So it was very helpful, and and obviously my tenure at the FAA was quite helpful in, in the sense that we really did exploit IT advances significantly to learn how to collect and analyze data and use it proactively to prevent accidents. And it was more than just in one area that you could kind of do those advances. So you, was it kind of just generally the whole national airspace, like trying to add technology to all facets of it, you know, airport groundwork, you know, uh, air traffic control, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it was quite general. It was about how to design the airplane to make it more pilot friendly. It's about how to design the system to make it more airplane friendly. It was, it it really covered the, the whole spectrum of issues in, aviation like operations. One thing always had to lead to another. You couldn't just do it in a vacuum. Right. It had to had that's why I now coined the term system think, which means you have to understand how the totality of the system works. It's a the system is a is a a complicated mix of 
many subsystems that are connected together. Yeah. And because of the connections, if you make a change in one subsystem, you're going to have other changes in other subsystems. And that's always the challenge is whenever you make a change, are you going to generate unintended consequences sure. elsewhere in the other subsystems? And, and so that system think is crucial and collecting the data really helps inform the system think process. I think, I think that approach is not good just for like national airspace. I think if we can all try to apply a system think to everything we do, because unintended consequences are, are what take me down quite often. But uh, it's a very interesting approach that for not just air travel, but probably all the other modes of transportation. Do you know if, you know, now that, you, you know, I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit. Do you do you see that being used in some of the uh, highway freight travel or within the the rail freight travel that the more systems approach? Well, actually, it's much broader than that. It's not just other modes of transportation because when I was at the FAA, many industries came to me. At the time, I was the assistant administrator for system safety at the FAA. So many industries came to me and said, "How are you, aviation guys, managing risk as well as you do, and what can we learn from you?" Yeah. That's why now I speak to lots of those industries, and I'm talking about nuclear power and chemical manufacturing and petroleum refining and healthcare and banks. Yeah. I mean, so after the meltdown in 08, the banks came in and said, how, how are you guys managing risk? We obviously didn't do it very well. How are you doing it? And what can we learn from you? This process of the way that aviation has done it, it's a, it's a collaborative approach and it's called, it's a program called CAS, Commercial Aviation Safety Team. I think that is very, very transferable to lots of different industries, not just other transportation mode, but lots of different industries and yeah. could benefit I, I'm looking forward to taking advantage of what I learned here to benefit lots of these industries big time because they're when aviation did it, they they started it because in the mid nineties the accident rate had been coming down for decades for lots of reasons, mostly new technologies like jet engines and simulators and mm -hmm. automation had been bringing the rate down, but in the early nineties it was starting to get stuck. So the airline industry was worried because the FA was projecting within the next fifteen or twenty years double the volume of flying. So simple yeah. arithmetic tells you stuck flat rate times double the volume means twice as many smoking burning airplanes sure. on CNN. And that's what scared the industry into doing something different. And what they did was a collaborative approach where they brought everybody together, the airlines, the manufacturers, the airports, the pilots, the controllers, the regulator, to work collaboratively to figure out how to make this complex system work better. And that's what CAST is. It's a voluntary collaboration program. And I think that voluntary collaboration could really benefit many, many industries that are engaged in yeah. potentially hazardous endeavors. And, and you said it was the airlines that, that said we need to do this and they well, it started... it was the industry. It was the, the airlines, the regulator. So everyone kind yeah. of all got, at right. the same time, realized something needed to happen here right. and and uh, and this came up. And by the way, the regulator, it was very important that the head of the FAA at the time emphasized that the solution to getting off this plateau is not more regulations for the regulator. Yeah. It's not a bigger stick for the regulator. It's we all have to work together to figure out how to make this complex system work better. Because you can try to regulate safety, but unless you really, if everyone's really bought into it, right. it's not going to, no matter how many regulations you have, it, it won't really right. get the impact that you want it to. And actually this, the, just to give you an idea of the success story yeah. of this effort, that flat stuck rate that a lot of people thought wasn't going to get much better because it's probably about as good as it's ever going to be, mm -hmm. they reduced it by more than 80% in only 10 years and did it without bringing, this process did not generate a single new regulation. So the oh, administrator was right. This this is not an issue of more regulations. This is an issue of figuring out how to make a complex system work better. And so was that the one of the things that you were spearheading during yes. your time there? And so you kind of... Uh, how do I, were you hurting a lot of cats to try to get everyone to do this or was 
was everyone dedicated to it? And so you, I mean, you had to get them all together, but you weren't trying to chase people to participate or really get in on this. Well, that's a good question. Getting people to collaborate is, is a tough (laughs) challenge. I mean, a lot of them have very differing interests and sometimes even competing interests. And we're asking them to work together in this collaboration. So for example, labor and management, they're always beating up on each other. Whenever there's a crash, one defendant is going to be the, the manufacturer of the airplane. Another defendant is going to be the airline. So they're going to be beating up on each other in court, showing that it was not my fault, it was their fault sort of yeah. thing. And now we're asking them to work together. So this, this is not a trivial challenge when you ask people to collaborate who have differing and sometimes competing interests. And that, to me, it's a tribute to the FAA administrator at the time, David Henson, and the head of safety at United at the time, Ed Soliday. Those were the two who convinced everybody to come to this table with not with a myopic, I'm going to get what's best for me out of this thing, but with a much broader view, I'm here to help the system work better and then we all win. So that that is a huge challenge to get people to stop thinking just for their own self-improvement and think about system improvement, then we all win. And do that. And it was, it was U.S. focused, but did it, you know, kind of help spread internationally with, especially with now all of the mergers and acquisitions and airlines, airlines purchasing everybody and all those kind of things. Has it has it gone global? I guess is one it, way to it, say. Is it, it started out? certainly in the U.S., but there's always been international participation because Airbus was a big player in it. So, okay, yeah. so that that helped it be international right there. But they are also trying to look at doing similar programs around the world as we speak. Yeah. So it yes, it started here, but it's growing around the world. And it's one of those things that you can't just now since it's been successful, you can't just let it be. It's something that needs to continually be worked on and maintained because you have new pilots coming on, new leadership and different, you know, agencies, organizations. Um, new you know, equipment, new automation, new procedures. Yeah. The whole thing is very dynamic, continually dynamic. So it, it ha- it's a continuing effort. As they say, safety is not a destination. It's a continuing journey. Yeah. Who uh, does the FAA still kind of take the lead on making sure everyone stays up to date on all of that? And, they, and the it? CAS process is co-chaired by the FAA and by an industry representative. Oh, okay. So to this day. So that structure still remains. That's awesome. And so how long did that take? So you were at the FAA for 14 years? From 95 until 09. And so was that most of your tenure at the FAA was getting this together, getting it off the ground? Uh, that and was like, a, certainly a good part of it, yes. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, a lot of it was once we opened up the pipeline of this information that we needed, how to use that information. Sure. That, there's a lot more information than we have the capability to use. So that a lot of it was not just you know, removing the filters that were blocking this information. But once once the pipelines were open and the information started coming, then we had far more than we knew how to use. So the challenge was, okay, now what do we do with it? That was a mental note I was making to myself because you're hearing a lot of that discussion now with other sort of safety devices out there. Um, you know, positive train control has a lot of data that goes with it and what do you do with it all? That seems like an enormous amount of data and you don't need it all, but h- how do you filter it out and hope, making sure that you don't take out something that could lead you know, uh, a kind of a triggering item. Hey, you know, we're seeing this a lot of times. We should really, you know, I guess it is, it's just continually refined. You That's know, a someone's kind of evolutionary challenge. Yes. Yeah. We learn as we go. And accidents sometimes tell us, gee, we should have looked for that because if we had looked at that, we would have seen this accident coming and could have done something about it to prevent it. So that's, that's, that's a learning curve. Yeah. I'm sure. And so that, you know, taking the accident part, that then, ties into the NTSB and, and others, you know, the, the UK equivalent, as you were talking about earlier, you know, looking at, okay, you know, cast collects this, but we don't analyze it. So let's do a historical look to see how close we were or, you know, why, 
why it didn't get picked up. Um, cause I guess, can you look at some of the data retroactively like that? Is there most definitely, is it something that researchers like do different studies on and, and look at, or is it, um, uh, just really held within the industry and the regulators to kind of do kind of for pr- privacy protections and proprietary protections, those kind of things. Are... There's there's some of both. There There is a lot that needs to be protected. But on the other hand, we do try to, not we, but I mean, the CAST operation sure, yeah. tries to make it available. Can, to... It's kind of your baby. You had it for a long time. So <laughs> well, you can. You. I appreciate that. So yes, they do try to make it available for academics, for example, to go through it and see what kinds of gems they can get out of it. And, yeah. and that's that's been, that's produced a lot. That's really cool. I, I mean, I, I'd heard of it, but I never really, never had that much detail. So I do really appreciate you sharing that because I knew you kind of worked on it, but I didn't realize, I mean, I knew it made an impact in, in uh, airline safety because as you know, highway fatalities are going up and there's been discussion about how do we, because it had plateaued for seven something years, like within the same margin, like how do you make that next step to try to get lower and, you know, cast has come up as, you know, example of what the airline industry did. I, you know, translating that into highways, I'm not people much smarter than I will need to try to, uh, you know, try to figure out how to do something like that. It's not something I know how to, but it's very interesting. So the people who are trying to automate cars are discovering quickly that it's a very challenging environment, actually much more challenging to automate than airplanes Yeah, in lots of ways. So that's, yes, that will be a, that, that challenge can learn from aviation, but they're going to have to. There's, they're going to have to go a lot farther than aviation. You did. To, and you're one of the very first people I ever heard that made that connection um, to uh, you know the vehicle automation that we're seeing and the uh, quote unquote autonomous vehicles that are going to be coming out soon. I still have my my doubts that it's going to be within the next five to six years. I I have a much longer sight frame that I hope my four year old might have an autonomous <laughs> vehicle when you know she starts to have kids. But uh, when, when she has kids, that's a long ways away. We're not going to talk about that. But um, you know, the aviation world has had it for a while, but they're also different kind of operators. And that's where, when I first heard you talking about that um, a few years back, it was, you know, you have highly trained individuals whose, whose job, this is what they do. They fly and they know how to work these systems. Drivers, we all know how to drive, but it's not quote unquote our job. It's not something that we, you know, focus we need to focus more time on it when we're driving, but it's something we don't do. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, that's one of the reasons it is far more challenging to automate cars then because pilots are highly trained to use the automation. Yeah. Drivers aren't. And the drivers, okay, it's in the manual. The manual tells you how to use it. How many people ever read the owner's manual? You know, that's just not going to happen. So to the extent it relies on people reading the owner's manual, yeah. it's not going to work. No. They're, so they're very, and plus it's just a far more variable environment. So you got... You know, things coming from the the curb, dogs rock, you know, running across yeah. the street, and kids, and <laughs> and the FedEx truck that's parked in the street while the guy takes the delivery to the door, and they're, they're such a variable environment, sure. much more so than in aviation. Yeah. No. Before we started taping, uh, James and I were talking about manuals and how we only ever really read them when something <laughs> breaks, or we really, really can't figure it out. That's well, it. I go to mine every time it changes from daylight savings to not because I don't know how to do the <laughs> clock, so I. Go to my owner's manual to do the clock to figure out how to do that right uh as a generation i used to have to change the vcr for my mother to make sure that the clock time would change on that i can understand that because right. i could figure out the vcr i could never figure out how to how to change it in our car because <laughs> it was hold down three buttons and then twist this knob it was never something you could ever accidentally do unless you were probably a five-year-old and you could accidentally do that but it was never something i could right. ever do right but no, so that's really important. 
So um, to your point of the intersection between the legal and the engineering, for yeah. example, one of my proudest accomplishments at the FAA was I was the one who spearheaded the legislation that now protects information that's voluntarily supplied from Freedom of Information Act and from from discovery oh. in, under under FOIA. Okay. So that so that's why now the the people who collect that information that's MITRE is the is the one the agency that we chose to collect it. They now have information from flight data recorders from literally millions of flights. So that's that was enabled by that legislation because otherwise people were afraid to give it to a government inter- entity sure. because it might they might get it from the Freedom of Information Act, I and about that. nobody would want to do that. So that was one of my proudest accomplishments, where I put my legal skills together with the engineering <laughs> challenge, and ended up with this statute that now protects this information from public disclosure. Well, and that's a big part of what you were talking about earlier—getting the buy-in from everybody involved. Right. You wouldn't get either, you know, individual pilots possibly, or even organizations to share data because they're worried that they realize they screwed up. And they didn't want to get in trouble for it, so they just were going to kind of And they of didn't want it. the public to know about it. Yeah. Right. And so if you can look at those close calls and figure some of that out, I think that's those are almost as as good or better learning tools than right. um, some, some of the crashes, because normally a crash is, or an accident is a, a catastrophic. Like, the you know, nothing would have probably, you know, it, w- it was too big. Like, a close call right. has just missed it, you know. So why did it just miss? How did that happen? Plus, I, there are a lot more of them. Yeah. So we can do statistical analysis on close calls much better than we can on actual accidents because accidents, knock on wood, are few and far between. Yeah. So there are a lot more of them that really show us patterns and systems that we need to look at in the bigger picture rather than this pilot in this airplane at this airport. Yeah. So um, y- you have said that you like to fly because it was therapeutic and relaxing. Can you describe that for me? Did you just like some days be like, hey, I'll see you in a, a few hours. I just need to go go do laps around, you know, the state. Well, just the freedom <laughs> to get places without being caught in highway congestion. Yeah. And, and I, I can't tell you what a great feeling is when you take off on a foggy day and you get up above the clouds and it's now beautiful sunlight day. So, I mean, there are just a lot of things about it that are very, ther- just beautiful sunrises and sunsets. I mean, there are yeah. a lot of things that are very therapeutic to me. Uh, since we uh, have taken your flight time away from you here at the agency, <laughs> any any replacement therapeutic? Do you now run laps around the building with an iPhone with some nice pictures? To now, I fly my Microsoft simulator. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually not a bad idea. I'm sure we could find a spare room somewhere and set that up, and we'd have a line of people willing to uh, right. take a little right. a little therapy break to do that. Um, so you did the 14 years at the FAA, then, and then came back to the NTSB. Um, and we sort of talked about some of the changes, but I, I sort of distracted you as, as I uh, tend to do, as James knows, um, listening to all these episodes. But what other change besides seeing some of the how the more data is being used for the aircraft investigations? Any other big changes? Did the agency grow a lot from the 90s to then the 2000s? Like, did you, you know, more people coming in maybe on the highway side because because at that point, aviation uh uh, large aviation crashes, not necessarily going down, but were slowly going down in the early 2000s. Um, well, the uh, big airplanes were crashing less, but we still have 1,500 general aviation crashes a yeah. year. So our aviation guys are still very busy. And plus, they're being called around the world because for two reasons. One, because if it's a, if there's a crash involving an American-built airplane or sure. American-built engines or a lot of American passengers or an American airline, then then we have a treaty, international treaty right to be there. But even without that treaty right, a lot of people, because of our world-class expertise that we have here, not me, but the career employees who do this, 
because of that, they are often called to help with investigations even when yeah. we don't have a, a treaty right to be there. So they're still staying pretty busy. Was that was a lot of that going on in the 90s as well? We had a lot of that, but we were more we were more tied up with domestic with domestic stuff. In, yeah. Yes. So going out, well, that's um, the the um, biggest change has been the IT environment. The the enormous amount of information that we have available to help us figure out what went wrong with and, and focus it more surgically than just, oops, this airplane crashed. I wonder, you know, so yeah. back from coming from the days when you just went and you saw a crumbled mess of metal and trying to figure out from that what went wrong. We have so much information now to help us figure it out that yeah. it's, it's very rare these days that we can't figure out what went wrong. Do you see it translating well between the modes? Like there's more data for now for all the modes to kind of we're certainly pushing on that, and, and it's, it's happening not necessarily intentionally in some cases. So, yeah. for example, in your car, you now have a chip on your airbag. You have a chip on your analog brakes. Th those chips have valuable information that our engineering guys can, even though it wasn't designed for this purpose, sure. they can go in there and get that information out of it because most of it is non-volatile, which means once once the power is lost, the information isn't lost. Yeah. So our engineers can go to those non-volatile non chips and help figure out what you know what happened how fast it was going when were the brakes applied all those kinds of issues like that add to the story so try to figure out what the what the full story is just exactly. based off all these different pieces right that's really cool uh you when we were doing kind of a pre-interview uh question session i asked you about one thing why you decided to become an attorney and i liked your answer and <laughs> um there are some individuals that may not know this answer so i'm going to ask you here because i want to hear more of the details so so why did you want to become an attorney? It's a very simple answer. It's Perry Mason. <laughs> so when I was growing up and saw Perry Mason episodes, I'm looking at this guy who made $75 an hour, which of course is a small fortune back in when I was looking at it. Yeah. He drove the coolest car in the world, a Ford hardtop convertible, and he never lost a case. So I figured, <laughs> okay, what's not to like about that? I want to do that. He had great theme music too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know. Uh, that's funny. I just know a lot of people will have probably no idea who Perry Mason is. And so uh, I, I find that to be highly entertaining. Um, now I can look at episodes on the retro station. So I can look <laughs> at, you know, go back to those days and, and relive those days again. Yeah, I I do that. I am, like I said earlier, I have a four-year-old. And so I'm stockpiling uh, DVDs with the cartoons that I grew up with because they're harder to find. And uh, I think she needs to experience some of those too. They're not the best. Some of them are very violent. And so there yes, may be some of true. those cartoons that should not be revisited, very but true. that was a lot of my childhood. Somebody was always getting blown up. Or, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, they always survived it, but they were always getting blown up. They look blown up and they looked horrible. And yeah. Yeah. I see, I see things now through a different light and I'm like, wow, really? My mom <laughs> let me do this. I can't believe that. Like, <laughs> I guess good for her, but, but, but she it really... does explain a lot, doesn't it? No, <laughs> a little, yeah, no, just kidding. You're, you're, you're very <laughs> correct. You're very, you're very correct there. Um, so the the number of years that you've been, you know, a member at the board and and doing a, a ton of different things and and experiencing um, some of the, you know, some really horrible uh, accidents and crashes and and seeing the great work that investigators have gone through to do. From from start to finish, what has been what have been some of the most interesting um, accident or crashes that you've been involved with that really stick in your mind as either changing moments for you personally or changing moments for the industry or the agency? Does anything stick out? Actually, I do have some recollections from both times at the NTSB. One of the more recent ones was the the uh, test flight crash of of a Virgin Galactic space flight that they're 
making available to the public to fly for, I forget, $250,000. You can go to 62 miles and see the curvature of the Earth. And so they're in the test flying phase to develop the, the spaceship that will do this. Mm -hmm. It's a six-person, two pilots, and six people. That's, so it's a very small, and it launches from a mothership. And so they did a test oh, flight yeah, of that. That's right, and, that's right. And, one of the, and they had a crash, and one of the test pilots was killed. The other one survived. So, so that was an amazing experience because it was a, a learning experience for everybody. So, for example, the Congress was very concerned that if the FAA regulated it too tightly, they would completely stifle the innovation. So they made the FAA back off significantly compared to how much it regulates commercial airlines. So it was a learning experience for the FAA. It was a learning experience for us because we had not ever seen the FAA in that context but also just because it's a frontier forging technology that yeah. Richard Branson is developing to help people see their planet in a way that they've never seen before. And what an amazing push ahead to do that. And, and it was just fascinating to be part of that exercise to, to help him do that better because what we were basically doing was providing an independent outside look at how this whole situation was designed and gave him an opportunity to get that independent outside look for free on, on our tax dollars. And so it was an amazing experience all the way around to yeah. to see him forging new frontiers, to, to to work together with him to try to be able to do it better. It was quite an amazing experience. Yeah, and that was one of the first, because, I mean, there was, at the time that that happened, a, a big push to, people were thinking there were going to be a ton of other commercial space flights, you know, or I guess private commercial space flights sending people up, these these right. ferries that would go up. So it was, it was the first of what people were concerned would be many because, it was a little less. It was less regulated than some of the other aviation uh, fields. Right. So that it's and there, you know, stay tuned. There are a lot of developments yet to occur in that arena. But sure. But yeah, this was one of the first, first out of the box, so to speak, and it was fascinating from that standpoint. Yeah. Another one that was very interesting was the. This one was the first time I was here, and this was one that I haven't figured out to this day. This was a railroad <laughs> accident, where the. Um, it was a passenger train that derailed. And the reason it derailed is because it came up on a switch that was not aligned with the main track. It was aligned to go on the siding. And okay. the speed limit to go on the siding is probably 20 miles an hour. This train was going full speed for commercial, for a passenger train, probably 79 miles an hour. Well, what happened was there were two guys involved. One was standing at the switch. One was standing at the signal, which is at about a mile from the switch. The purpose of the signal is to tell the engineer whether this, switches in the correct direction or not. So sure. it's green if the switch is aligned and it's red if the switch is, goes off to the siding. So after the train passed the green signal saying that the switch was aligned, the person at the, the switch took a bolt cutter and cut it and then moved the switch to the wrong position, to the siding position, so that when the train arrived at the at the switch, then it derailed on this, on this siding. Yeah. And, and that's because after the train passed the green signal, then the then the guy radioed his buddy, the train has passed, now you can move the switch. And that's what he did, and that's when the train derailed. So I'm figuring out why, why I'm trying to figure why would these guys why would they want to derail this train this way? Yeah. They're probably in jail to this day. That was in the early nineties, they're probably in jail to this day because there were several fatalities on that accident. So that was an amazing one. That was the only one that I've worked on that really involved intentional wrongdoing. So that was a, an interesting experience because when our investigators saw the boat cutters right there by the switch. They immediately knew something was amiss here, and that's what yeah. we called the FBI, as we always do whenever there's intentional wrongdoing, and work with them on that. One of them that really st stunned me, and I haven't figured out as a pilot, I call it an eye roller because all I could do is roll my eyes and say, how on earth did they do that? Yeah. 
was the attempted takeoff from Bedford, Massachusetts, in a, in a Gulfstream in a G-4, when the pilots had not removed the gust lock. So the gust lock is, is a device that's supposed to keep the controls fixed so that if the airplane is parked outside and it's a windy day, the, con the wind doesn't flap the controls oh, around okay. and damage it. So that's what the gust lock is for, is to keep the controls from flapping around. And obviously you need to remove the gust lock in order to fly because it keeps the controls from moving. Yeah. And so there they are taxiing out. The gust lock is in place. They haven't followed the checklist. The checklist has at least two instances when they're supposed to check the gust lock, and they didn't. These guys between them had 30,000 hours and unblemished records and trained in the finest places in the country. And here they are making this very fundamental mistake and getting a lot of warnings as they're taxiing out that something is amiss here and, and not figuring it out, even to the point of when they tried to take off and move the throttles. The gust lock prevented the throttles from moving all the way but yeah. they still kept going because the throttles moved enough for them to accelerate down the runway, and they, that's what they were doing. And I, that's an eye roller to me. Why would these pilots with vast experience, unblemished records, seasoned, best, yeah. of, best of the best, make a mistake like Go that? Into that? It goes kind of with some of the stuff you were saying earlier about the, you know, you have to be a full, you know, everyone needs to be involved in safety, and it's something that you need to have be part of your daily, you know, your daily life. And, They'd been so safe, they probably just had not saying that they turned an eye, you know, a blind eye to safety or whatever, but they were moving forward with other things and they, you know, they didn't feel that maybe they. And it goes to one of the major issues we're seeing as things get safer is complacency. People yeah. are saying, ah, we got the safety thing figured out. We don't need to worry about yeah, that anymore, but we're doing good. You always have to worry about that. Uh, you, you mentioned that it was, um, uh, uh, and thank you to Stephanie in the, in the room, it was Spaceship Two, which was the, the, um, the flight that that went down and it was you know we have a lot of the data on our you know on our dockets on the website people can look at it but it the data was a big part of this and we were talking about getting more data from the 90s and and this plane was so far up but if i remember some of the uh after action reports correctly i mean they had they had cameras and they had you know i'm going to say thousands of data points that were streaming down to a command center i mean did that really help paint the picture? Was that, uh, I mean, I'm assuming it's valuable. I'm just going to. Yes, it was a I'll test flight. in your mouth, but yeah. Test flights are usually highly instrumented. So this one was a test flight. It had lots and lots of data, more than an operational flight would have. And it had many cameras, not only in the vehicle, but also chase planes that were following behind yeah. it. And so we had and ground cameras that we had views from quite a few. And the, and the camera in the cockpit really told a story in a way that we have never seen before. And that's one of the reasons we're pushing for cameras in the cockpit because sure. it really shows you exactly what's going on, gives you a lot more information than you can get from a flight data recorder, gets you a lot more information than you can get from a cockpit voice recorder, which just records sounds in the cockpit. And so that was a, a huge opportunity for us to take advantage of the ability to collect and gather and analyze information to figure out what went wrong. Yeah, and since it was one of the first you know, I don't want to call it a space flight, but I mean, it was, a, it was, you know, early generation space flight. The, the information that we gathered would be able to help other space flights as they develop their, you know, their platforms that they wanted to use. So like you said, it was very, um, very good and, and useful for Virgin as they modified and, and developed the next generation of their, of their aircraft and go forward. But I have to imagine that, the analytical eye that the um, NTSB was able to put towards it really did probably help others as they developed and went forward with their own programs. Well, that's how we like to operate. We like to publish everything we do to, to, 
to make the benefit of this knowledge, to, to spread it as widely as possible so that other people who are doing similar things can learn from it as well. Yeah. So that's, that's why we uh, pride ourselves in taking advantage of the IT advances to get our information out better than we have ever done before. That's one of the big changes that we're engaged in now is figuring out better ways to get the information out rather than just a 300-page report that sits on somebody's shelf but actually have a video and have other ways to get it sure. through the social media and you know look at the variety of ways to get the information out because that's that's our job is to get the information out as broadly as possible so that people can benefit from it. Yeah. And I'm I'm finding that you know it's 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 good to get that information out cross modally as well, you know. We get a great information from an aircraft investigation or rail investigation, but it could be useful in a different way to someone in a different mode, so I think it's important to you know not uh um not lock yourself into only looking at things within your your silo or your zone of of control kind of look outside and get ideas from different things and this is where some of the conversations that you were doing earlier about about the cast system for airlines how it could be useful for other modes of transportation and different groups not even related to transportation in addressing addressing the um the system's approach to things and looking at that um, and and talk- that's why we try to make our data more searchable so that yep. if you're in some other industry and you're looking for data that could be relevant to you our ability to help that happen is enhanced by our ability to to put search to you know put keywords in there that that would show up in your search even though it's not in your mode. Yeah, for sure. Um, this has been amazing, and I haven't even gotten to some of the questions that I wanted to get to, but I'm noticing we're we're going to start running short on time here. But I did want to just you know ask one more question. You've had you know a term in the '90s here. You then went to the FAA, and your term here is uh, getting ready to, to end. You know, what's next on the horizon for soon-to-be former board member Christopher Hart? Well, that's a good question. And certainly the the apex of my experience here was being chairman for, mm-hmm. acting chairman for a year, real chairman for two years. And that was, you know, that was the mountaintop. Once you've been to the mountaintop, <laughs> wow. So, so now I have to decide, since I'm a political appointee, which means my term will expire sooner rather than later, I have to decide what am I going to do when I grow up. Yeah, And I think just from what I've seen here, there's an amazing opportunity to take what I've learned here and, as I mentioned before, apply it in other industries and apply it in all those industries I mentioned and take our automation learning and apply it to help automate cars. Because yeah. when, when we're losing 40,000 people a year on our highways, that is totally unacceptable. That's a public health problem. Yeah, The, the ability of automation to bring that number way, way down is significant, but if people don't learn lessons from the past and have some bad automation crashes that scare people, that's going to delay implementation sure. for years. So hopefully we can learn from the past. And that's what I, I, I think there's a huge opportunity to take. The I mean, airlines are still, the aviation industry has been automating for decades and they're still learning. It's, yeah. They're still on a learning curve. They're still encountering situations that they had never encountered before. And there's a lot to learn from that. that what that tells you is you will never have perfect automation. Yeah. You're always going to be developing it. And and the car makers, the, the sooner they realize that there's a lot to learn from people who have been down this path before, the, the better. Yeah. Kind so of. That's, that's what I would like to do is take the amazing learning that I've gotten here and apply it to broaden the safety improvement efforts in a variety of industries. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the running theme that I'm getting from, from our, our past 45 minutes here is just you can never you can never sit still when it comes to safety and and improving safety in whatever you're doing. You always have to continue to to look for other options and continue to grow and learn from your mistakes and learn from your history and, and continue to move forward. 
uh, I and, think and learn that even though automation takes care of this possible mistake, it probably generates other possible yeah. mistakes, and you have to recognize, hmm, what other possible mistakes could result from this improvement that eliminates this type of mistake. So, yeah, learning that learning curve on automation is is continuous. Yeah, learning never ends. I also right. appreciated that you said you're still trying to figure out what you want to do when you grow up. So <laughs> that's a that's a big mantra of mine as well. Right. But with that, I really, I do really want to thank you for joining us. This was great. I, I enjoyed it immensely. And I have so many follow-up questions I'll probably hit you in the hall with that, uh, that I didn't even get to ask. So I really do appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. Um, well, again, thank you for making this possible. It was my pleasure. Well, any anytime you want to come on, we're, we're here for you. I appreciate that. Um, so, well, thank you, everyone. Really enjoy you uh, joining us on this. Um, And uh, make sure, again, to rate us on your favorite uh, podcast listening service and follow us on all the social medias. And with that, my name is Eric Strickland, and thanks for coming behind the scenes.